language is that of Mordor, which I will not utter here. Mordor? In the common tongue, it says, one ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, fight them. All right, folks, welcome to Man Cave Movie Review, the podcast reviews the good, the bad, and the ugly of movies for men. This is episode 60, and today we're talking about Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. This great and fantastic movie has a massive cast, which is almost impossible to give top billing, but includes Elijah Wood, Ian Holm, Christopher Lee, Ian McKellen, and a host of others that we'll be talking about throughout the show. I am your host, Steve Michaels, and joining me is my good and dear friend, Mark. They have a cave troll. Slover. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. I wonder, and, and this is a social theory I have, gentlemen, I wonder how many brides-to-be on their wedding day as their vows are being offered to them by their minister, priest, rabbi at all are saying that in their heads when they're saying, I do. <laughs> I'm guessing probably a few. Yes. Very well done. Like it. And also joining us is our other very good and dear friend, Ken, Precious Roni. You know, I was, I was hustling to get home tonight, and I think people kept just getting around me. just kept going around me and blocking my way until I finally just decided, they shall not pass. <laughs> well done. I love that one. Folks, are, uh, the reason that we're doing Lord of the Rings, because uh, we promised last uh, week we were going to do The Duelist, but uh, our other good and dear friend, Jeff, you call me Frodo again, and I'll kill you, Muncie, is unfortunately unable to attend tonight. So we did a last-minute switcheroo. Uh, I'm sure everybody is shocked. Shocked, I say, that we had to actually switch it out again because, like we said in the last show, there's some movies that we all have to be together for. And uh, The Duelist is one of them. So we're doing Lord of the Rings. But fret not, we're only halfway into 2013, so I think probably before the end of the year we're going to get The Duelist in. God willing. So anyway, we are going to be talking about Lord of the Rings. And for those of you who have absolutely no idea what the hell this movie is about, this is the film adaptation of the uh, classic uh, uh, J.R. Tolkien uh, book of Lord of the Rings. And it is the first part of a three-part series. Uh, This is The Fellowship of the Rings, uh, followed by Shit. The Two, the two towers. towers. The Two Towers, thank you. Return of the King. And Return of the King. My God. So we are actually watching the, or we're reviewing the first one, uh, which is Fellowship of the Ring, and in my humble opinion, uh, the, the best uh, of all of them, mainly because of just the, you know, the look and feel of it. I would say um, Two Towers was uh, definitely a, a, a close second. Uh, but this one really is uh, uh, one of the best, and... Again, for those of you who have no idea what Lord of the Rings is, and I'm assuming that anybody who's listening to the Man Cave uh, movie review, you guys know this story. Uh, You know what it's about. Uh, I don't want to go into a a whole lot of detail, so I'm just going to assume that those of you who have uh, or that are listening to this uh, show have either read the book or have seen the movie. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in in terms of the plot. Uh, I just really kind of want to dive right into this particular movie in terms of I know all of us have read the book. I will confess I was one of probably one of the few that read this book, like I did a lot of the Tom Clancy books, 
where uh, they're they're thick and chewy, and I found myself skipping over stuff because it's like, all right, we're we're talking about stuff that just it just didn't it didn't interest me. And then you're like, okay, now we're getting into dialogue and doing stuff. And it's a pretty good book. I read the book I think when I was about a freshman in high school. And I've tried to read it again since then, and I realized I must have been just like bored out of my mind as a freshman in high school, which is why I finished the book. I can't honestly get through it today. It, it is. It's just, it's a chewy book. It's a heavy book, it, but it's good stuff. I mean, it is, it's one of those things where it was a labor of love, I think, by Tolkien. Uh, it's a great story. And when they brought this movie out to the big screen, um, Again, expectations were high on anybody who's read the book or, or was a fan of the book. Uh, expectations were high, and I have to say that um, they were met big time, at least as far as I was concerned. And as a matter of fact, I think if you didn't read the book, you can go see this movie and you can get a pretty good idea of what the book was like. Uh, I mean, there's some central stuff that's left out. However, uh, overall, I think Peter Jackson, who was the uh, director of this movie, I think he did a very, very good job of capturing the look and feel of, of that book because when I remember seeing the movie, it was like, yeah, this is this is the book. This is what I felt the book would be. Like you, I mean, I read them back then, read them thoroughly. I mean, I, I probably, I think I reread them, but I haven't read them since. I, I went to a stage there back then where I was a real Tolkien freak, and I read every, you know, read all the books. I got, you know, the extras, read the biographies and everything else. I because uh, and I'll just say, the books were created again. For those of you that don't know, I mean, I think the the books were written in the fifties. Uh, again, three separate books made to be one story. Tolkien was a academic. He's a specialist, a professor of medieval languages, and he's you know deep into history, and he used his talents to create, you know, this vision of a, a world, this fantasy world, it draws heavily on ancient themes, ancient legends, but it gives a twist where it's original uh, for the most part. I think that those books were the source of so much that has percolated through our culture. Uh, and I'll just throw out you know, a few things. is pretty much any fantasy thing out there, it's probably, you can trace it back to Lord of the Rings. Uh, all you guys that are playing World of Warcraft, World of Warcraft wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Lord of the Rings. Good... Uh, Dungeons and Dragons wouldn't exist. And all the other fantasy role-playing and all those other related games, and you know, it doesn't matter if it's a paper and pencil game or a, a computer version, they all originally derived from this one guy's vision because he took what a lot of people otherwise would have found as being dull, dry, academic, you know, history and folklore, and made it into a really compelling story. And as you read the books, I'm like you, Steve. I'm sitting there getting my in my mind's eye, because he lays out these landscapes and what you see and what you hear. And the movie translated that so well. It was just amazing. Uh, I will throw in, I may as well get it out now, True Tolkien fans will pick many nits about what Peter Jackson did in the movies because he does change some dialogue, tweak some characters, put some people where they weren't in the books. He messed, you know, he changed, he dropped some, some, what some people consider to be major characters totally out. 
And I will admit that I have, I've, I've participated in those late night discussions with, you know, true fans that were just, you know, you know, I'm sitting there saying, oh, this is a great movie. You ought to see it. And there's go, it's dead to me. You know, it doesn't have Tom Bombadil in it. It doesn't have Tom Bombadil. It's dead. Or, you know, the, the, the men of Gondor did not wear plate mail. They wore chain mail. Like, oh, well, okay. So, you know, I don't want to, you know, that doesn't bother me. I really like this. Uh, I will make one last point and then hand it off to Mark. I'm going to pass on a bit of advice from the very first time I saw this. And when I first saw this, it was, I think it was the night it was released. And I was meeting Mark and about five other guys at a theater up on the north side. Mm -hmm. And we got there and it was like an eight o'clock show. And we're sitting there. We're going like, where's Jeff? Look at our watch. I mean, he's, he's late. I mean, we're, he's not going to make it. We're, he's going to miss the show. And then Jeff comes walking out of the movie and he reveals the fact that like, well, you know, I just went ahead instead of joining you guys, I just came down this morning and this is my third time through. So I'm just going to go ahead and head home. But he gave me advice that all of us agree is wise advice. And that is, and if you're sitting there, I'm like, you know, that, that big Coke you had with your popcorn is calling and you need to attend to affairs. Anytime Liv Tyler's Arwen character pops on the screen. When you see her face, you're safe to jump up, run to the bathroom, because you won't miss anything vital. And that's what I'll say as I pass it off to Mark. First, I would just like to agree with my esteemed colleague, Ken Roney, and say, here, here, sir, here, here. Anytime Liv Tyler appears in any of the movies, you can go to the bathroom. You will miss nothing. <clears throat> um. Ken nailed a lot of the points that I wanted to touch on, but there there are a couple things uh, to echo him. I think I understand the purist's point of view. I read this book first when I was um, in middle school and missed a lot. I've read it a number of times. I, it is one of my favorite series of books. Uh, I, I highly recommend the um, unabridged audio version that is available through Audible. The... Um, the person who narrated, who reads the book, does it with voices. It is one man. It is spectacular. So if you don't want to read it, but you are in your car a lot, uh, the the audible unabridged version is is terrific. It's magnificent. And I, I want to give real credit to Peter Jackson. And I know there will be some people who are purists who will disagree with me, but I think as a director and as someone who loves the work, it is very evident. Um, that Jackson loves the entire Tolkien universe, not just those three books, but all the other books and manuscripts that, that encompass the, the Middle Earth, wor the world of Middle Earth. It was a labor of love for him. And he did, he had to make hard choices. And I think the, the choices he made, while I don't always agree with them, were the best choices that could be made to keep continuity, to keep people engaged, to move the story forward, and to stay focused on the central issues of the arc of the movie. So with understanding why he had to do it, I really admire what he's done, and um, I, I think it's a real credit. And we're talking about an, a director who really, he'd had some horror movies to his name. This is not a Spielberg this is not a known director in many ways who comes forward and does an incredible 
incredible piece of work with this uh, this piece of literature because that's what it is. It is a piece of literature that is spun off, like Ken said, so many other things. It is a cultural phenomenon, um, even to the point of when you – and my view is when National Lampoon writes a book called Board of the Rings that lampoons Lord of the Rings, um, you've arrived. And if you've never read Board of the Rings, it's maybe 150 pages. You will laugh out loud and blow – blow coke out your nose not the white version of coke but the carbonated uh, effervescent liquid version um <laughs> just to delineate i i was taken aback at just like both of you how well the world was presented it was everything that tolkien described and tolkien was very descriptive um, you know, it is the England of Tolkien. And also, I would argue that Mordor and the orcs and all of that destructive nature is also reflective of his experiences when he served in World War I. So I, I think there is a lot of Tolkien and his life experiences, as well as his um, experiences and his, as an academic um, it was poured into this labor of love, and that's truly what this book is. And in turn, as I said earlier, I think Jackson pays homage and does a labor of love of a movie. And I'm, you know, the only other person who had tried this before had been Ralph Bakshi mm-hmm. with um, his animated slash live action where he had live actors and then animated over them effort with Lord of the Rings, which I will call it an admirable attempt. He only got to, I believe, The Two Towers, and it was very compressed in one movie. Uh, it is a stunning movie, and the last thing I want to say is he. it is a real credit to Jackson that he, where he filmed it, because he filmed it in an exotic locale. You guys touched on exotic locales in your last podcast about um, uh, Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. New Zealand, he opened vistas, and, and truly it, New Zealand is a is a place that is almost otherworldly that made you believe Middle Earth existed. And also, he found great actors, great British character actors, as well as little-known actors, um, to inhabit these roles, and then kept them together for all three movies. It, 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 it's, it was just it was stunning to see all of that laid out for you. And you couldn't wait for the next movie. I don't know about you guys. But you really couldn't wait. Now, the, do I have some issues with the movie? Yeah, we'll get into that. But overall, it, it is a stunning achievement in my mind. Well, you know, like you guys talked about, the purists don't like this movie. Uh, but I think the purists, as a general rule, won't like any kind of movie regardless of what they're purists in, whether it's a – I mean, you know, people bitched about the Bond movies, you know, back in the day, you know, because none of the Bond movies – even came close to what Ian Fleming was trying to get across, even to the point when they when they completely redid the franchise and brought Daniel Craig in. They're like, oh, he's not dark-haired, he's blonde. Okay, whatever. You're never going to make the purists happy because I don't care what you do, you cannot, if it's a book, you're never going to make it as good as the book you, because you can't compress all that stuff in because part of it is, ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to follow the the book as close as you can, you're probably going to be talking about a two-and-a-half to three-hour movie, and they've already got it figured out. After about an hour and a half, people start fidgeting in their chairs. They're tired. They want to leave. No one, no one wants to sit in a theater beyond two hours. So like Mark said, I can forgive a lot of what Jackson did in this movie. 
And I had never even heard of Peter Jackson up to this point. Uh, and when he came out with this, it's like, holy crap, where's this guy been hiding for forever? I, I, I mean, the, the, the directing, the cinematography, everything about this movie was just absolutely spectacular. I mean, you would have thought that this was some major world-renowned director. And I mean, I honestly have no idea what he did other than this. And, and I'm not taking away from him. I'm not saying that uh, you know he probably didn't do good work down there. But when you when you look at this cast, and we'll, and we'll talk about that. I mean, you've got this huge, huge ensemble cast. I mean, this is what I would refer to as the bridge too far cast. I mean, it's like everybody's in this flipping movie. Uh, I mean, you. I think you may have had some people from Bridge Too Far that were in this movie. I don't know. Um, I mean, when you're when you're bringing Christopher Lee to play uh, Saruman, it's like holy cow! I was amazed when uh, this movie came out and I saw Christopher Lee. I'm like, he's still alive. You had a great cast. One thing I did like about it is that I mean, the, the chemistry with everybody worked really well, and everything about the movie. I thought the way it started. Uh, the lead-in, just the background, I thought, was very good for people who had not read the book. How Peter Jackson did that whole intro, um, you know, with the with the narration, and then you got to see a little bit of that, well, that absolutely awesome battle scene uh, with, um, you know, when they were attacking Gondor, or Gondor, when they were attacking uh, Mordor. Um, you know, spectacular stuff there. And... And then how it just kind of leads in. And I love the Shire, just that look. I mean, it looked like, okay, it's like a little piece of Ireland, boom, or Scotland that they just that they just put in there. And, you know, the detail of everything, um, you know, this, this, is, this is somebody who had uh, an eye for detail. I mean, this was almost like, I mean, this is a movie that you would have thought really Scott did in terms of just the attention, the detail, and just how everything looked. I mean, everything looked perfect. It was in its place, um, just the way um, everything... It all felt real. It did. It felt very real. Thank you. I mean, and and, and even down to the point of when they would show close-ups with Frodo um, holding the ring. I mean, when you looked at his hands, I mean, his nails were, were like, uh, you know, they were bitten, they were dirty... I mean, it wasn't like these manicured hands. I mean, they just looked like he'd been toiling in the field. I mean, to that extent of detail. Um, you know, and then you had, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, you know, Vigo uh, uh, Manfred Jensen's and whatever. Mortensen. <laughs> Mortensen. There you, thank you. Um, I got some issues with him, but, I mean, he did fill the part in well. I mean, he did a very good job, I think, of, of, of looking the part. I think they could have got somebody else. Uh, There's a few too many times where, uh, I hate to say it, it kind of almost reminded me of he was like uh, um, uh, Kevin Costner in uh, Robin Hood, where it's like, okay, you know, dude, pick an accent. You know, because sometimes he's kind of slipping into one and then he's falling out of another. I don't know. It just, I always kind of had that feel about him in that movie. But I, I have to admit, he did do a pretty good job of looking the part. Um, I have no complaints with Aragorn. I thought he did fine. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just I'm not a big fan of that guy. I I think he's I, I question his acting abilities a little bit. I mean, I've seen him in about three movies, three or four movies, and I'm kinda like, 
I'm just kind of completely underwhelmed by the guy. But, hey, you know, that being said, this one I think he did a fine job in. Um, I don't have any complaints uh, with his performance in this movie. Like I said, just not a big fan of the guy. Now, I'm going to just tell you guys right now, and I'm, I'm drawing the line, uh, the line of death, and I'm sure you're going to cross it and kill me, but that's all right. Uh, I will agree with you at one point when Liv Tyler's on the screen. Yeah, you can you can leave and you know go take a Poe or whatever, and you're not going to miss anything. But I, you know, I'll just say this much: I mean, she is a central character in the book. Uh, I mean, she's necessary; she has to be there. And I think in terms of picking her for that role, I think they did a pretty decent job. I mean, she does have kind of an elfish look about her. I mean, she definitely fit the role. You know, was uh, you know was her role um, uh, necessary for the movie? Yeah, you had to have that. I mean, you had to have that character in there. Well, yeah, you did. Well, yeah, Jackson deliberately. Arwen is not a central figure. She is, I would say, a tertiary figure in the books. But Jackson decided to bring that character forward. Um. And I get the reasons why, because yeah. there are not many women in this. In in this is a men male centric series, other than Galadriel, who makes a brief appearance, which I think Kate Blanchett does a very good job. It, so he elevates the character and tells that backstory of their relationship. Right. I, I just don't think. Yeah, I think appearance wise, she looks the part. I just find Liv Tyler to be um, very. Very, very, and if I didn't get enough varies, I'll throw another one in. Very limited in her acting ability. And it was evident when she was up against some other people, whenever she was in a scene where she had to appear with other people, especially, and I'm spacing his name, and he played the agent in The Matrix, and he played oh, her father. Uh, uh, Hugo. Hugo Weaving. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. She just, she, she has a hard time up against people who are what I would consider people actors of, of skill and ability. Yeah, I'll give you that. I mean, I'll give you yeah. that part. Yeah. yeah I, I'm not, when I made my comment, I'm not saying, you know, I mean, if your bladder is going to hold out and you watch those scenes, great. <laughs> but getting back to what Steve was just saying, the movie, you know, all three movies here were about three hours long. Mm -hmm. And they were compelling enough that you really want to watch them. But, you know, if you had to take a break, I valued the idea that, well, you know, if you're going to miss anything, you won't miss anything dramatic at, at that point. Because it is, I hate to put it in the old, like, third grade, it's just mushy, smushy romance stuff. And like, okay, I get it. You can say, they're, they got they got a thing going on. That's all I need to know. And Let's move on. Right. Yep. I really think we kind of have to talk about how well this movie um fit in with the book and just the production value. I mean, like I said, I think Peter Jackson just did uh, such a fantastic job of just bringing the book to the screen. Um, and I'm just going to throw out my two cents here. There is a mythic nature to this book that really attracted people. And it is the mythic nature of this book, not only good versus evil, but that anybody can make a difference. The, the underlying theme of this movie is these are hobbits from the Shire. Shit, nobody even knew who hobbits were. Right. You, know, you hear that throughout the movie. These are the smallest, most unassuming people, yet they can change the wheels of history. Mm -hmm. So that 
the the issue I think also is that mythic nature of anybody can make a difference, no matter how small or large. And you see that time and time again in this movie with certain characters, minor characters, major characters, how actions breed or drive events that they may not realize. And I think there's a great, I don't know if you got the clip, there, there's a very moving, simple little scene when they're in the mines of Moria and they're lost. And, and Flor- Frodo realizes that um, Gollum is following them and comments about, I wish Bilbo had killed him. And Gandalf has this whole discussion about who lives, who dies, who chooses, you know, we don't know our place in history. And I'm paraphrasing very much. But it's a very eloquent, simple scene about we don't know what our impact in the world is going to be mm-hmm. until things unfold. And I think that's a great underlying theme in this movie if people want to de- dwell, delve into it, is you have choices about how you live your life. And, and that was very important to Tolkien. Right. And I think Jackson brought that forward. You have choices, and actions have consequences. And what you do, how you live your life is reflective of what kind of person you are and what kind of qualities are important to you. And I think one of the great conflicted characters and one of my favorite actors, and we'll get into him as an actor, is Sean Bean playing Boromir. Right. This is a man who's a patriot. He reminds me in some ways very much of Londo in Babylon 5. Right. He wants to do what is right to defend his home, which is Gondor. Mm-hmm. So much so that the ring preys upon him. him. And, and, and turns his, he's not an evil person. It poisons his mind because he is so virtuous in one thing, defending Gondor, because Gondor has defended Middle-earth, that it, it usurps his belief system and twists it. And I think that those types of elements are very subtle in this movie, and you can either watch it as a straightforward fantasy epic, a straightforward adventure, or you can really watch it a few times and go, "Wow, there are a lot of, there are a lot of themes about choice and human nature and right and wrong and good and evil yep. in this movie, time and time again." And what I want to say is, you brought up a good point. Is I never looked at it that way, but yeah, Boromir was like Lando. I mean, he was a patriot. I mean, he he wanted to do what was best for, uh, you know, his country, and Basically, kind of got corrupted by the uh, you know, by the shadows, if you will, or the or the ring. I mean, it's the same concept. I mean, that that's a fantastic. I never saw it that way, but that that's some great insight. Like I said, I can't give Peter Jackson enough credit for how he brought this book to the big screen. Uh, you know, like Ken said, I mean, this is you know, you watch the movie, and if you read the book, you're like, yeah, this is pretty much how I pictured it. This is how it looked. I want to jump real quick to uh, some of the scenes in the movie that I thought were were really good. And I don't know about you guys, but I think uh, the best part of this movie is when, when they get into the Mines of Moria. That is, I think, um, for anybody who's ever played Dungeons & Dragons, I mean, this is as good as it gets. I mean, this is literally like, oh boy, this is, I mean, we've rolled these characters. We've, we've been in these situations and <laughs> the way that whole thing was played out was absolutely fantastic. The whole scene from when Pippin dumps the bucket down the, or that, that corpse down the, down the well and makes all that noise. And just that, just the way that whole thing was filmed, 
was when it happened, he turns around, he has this look on his face like, shit. <laughs> and everybody's just kind of looking at him like, you stupid son of a fool of a took. Next time, throw yourself down the well. And I just love Boromir just kind of like puts his head down and goes, oh, gosh. <laughs> I mean, well, just... and then Boromir later, when, when things go really bad, sticks his head out the door and goes, they have a cave troll. Mm-hmm. Very matter-of-factly. Yeah, just... There's a lot of little humorous bits in there. Yeah. Well, that's but, you the know, thing you... all through the movie. There's, there is a lot of humor. This is a, again, the overall plot of the story is a heavy good versus evil, the fate of the world. Right. Like Mark said, it's every, everybody's got their place. You've got, you know, some that are big and strong, some that are small and weak. And that could easily turn into a downer of a story to watch. It'd just be so heavy and ponderous and oh my gosh. But they put little bits of humor and, you know, just upbeat parts in enough. They just loving it through to just keep you, you know, on the on front of your seats watching it and entertained. One of the other scenes that I really liked a lot too was the um, the scene when they were going to when the hobbits um, were going to um, the prancing pony, just the whole bar scene and everything like that. And one thing about this movie too that I really like uh, was the forced perspective because all the people that are playing hobbits, I mean, they're they're normal sized guys. Well. Not by my standards, but I mean, they're, I'm, I know I tower they were, over most. They were in the norm. They were in the norm. They were, they're Jeff, uh, they're Jeff size guys. <laughs> I was going to say they were world average. <laughs> He's so, going to kill us for that. You know what? That's what happens when you don't show up. So anyway, like I was saying, the force perspective in this, I thought was very well done because uh, like I said, you know, you've got Sean Astin and Billy Boyd and uh, Elijah Wood. I mean, again, they're, you know, again, world average height. But they actually did film it in such a way as they did look like little kids. And I thought that was really well done. And I and it, and it was believable. I mean, because there were times where I was sitting there going, God, how the hell are they doing this? How are they filming this? You know, it's incredible. Yeah, and I love that whole bar scene. I thought it was really cool because it did. It looked like something from the medieval times where you're, you know, everybody's just sitting around drinking meat and getting drunk and having a good time. And I don't know. You got, what do you guys think? I mean, was that? There th- are a lot of little vignettes. And uh, I'll back up real quick. This is an example of when you have the technology and the ability to do the special effects and the budget, how to do it right. This is not the George Lucas school of just because I can, I should throw the Crystal Skull Indiana Jones over the top special effects in. (laughs) This was done practical effects as well as uh, visual effects in in such a magnificent manner. I I think this is this will this will always stand up there as a an example of how to do it well. And there is the thing that I really like about it is. There are some small scenes that really attract my eye. And one of them, when you said Moria, because Moria is just so well done, mm-hmm. is when Gandalf says, I believe we can risk a little light. And he illuminates the Great Hall briefly. You don't see all the Great Hall because it's so huge. And then you see the perspective of how small they are mm-hmm. and their little light to this Great Hall of Dwerodelf. It, it just gives me chills because it's like, yeah. 
that's the book. That's Tolkien's artwork. Again, that's his that's his ink wash sketches. Mm-hmm. It, it's breathtaking. Um, I, I really admire those types of scenes where you have little pieces of what would be considered throwaway visuals. Like you said, Hobbiton. I think Hobbiton is it, it is perfectly done. It's what you would imagine. This yeah. is what hobbits look like. This is an agrarian community. Um, and they're all happy-go-lucky and drinking and um, the great party with the with the uh, I love the scene with Gandalf when he's furious with Pippin and Mary because they light off the the dragon. Yeah, uh, it, it's those types of things. And I think in some ways the movie the movie is great, but it, I think the movie really achieves brilliance in those little those little scenes. Mm-hmm. What they're not the battles, they're not the rousing speeches. They're those small little vignettes between a handful of people. Right. Uh, there's another one, but when Boromir's teaching Merry and Pippin how to fight. Right. Yep. <laughs> you know the one where they knock him down and they're wrestling and everybody's laughing. There's a lot of great stuff like that throughout this movie that you miss if you're not paying attention to it. Right. A thing that you know, touching on what you're just going through, and we've, we've gone at it before, I mean, the, the way that this movie brings the books to life. But, you know, a, I mean, just a fact of Tolkien's world is that there are these different races. They're all basically, you know, the, the dwarves, the elves, the, the men, you know, the orcs, hobbits. And the movie basically will run you through, here's a, here's a, Here's a hobbit community. Here's a human community. Here's an elvish community. Here's a dwarvish community. And they all feel different, vaguely alien. And you can sense the, I don't know, uncomfortableness or unease of, like, the dwarf when he's in the elvish realm or the elves when they're underground. I mean, they, they, they bring that through. Everybody's Everybody gets a chance in this. Every character gets a chance to be out of their element. Right. Well, you really see the guy that's out of his element is uh, the guy that plays, uh, or uh, John Rhys Davies, who plays Gimli. You really see him out of his element in uh, uh, Two Towers. But, uh, which, again, I think this, we're, we're talking about this one. We're definitely going to be doing the other two uh, down the road. Uh, we'll break it up. But uh, uh, I, I have to say, Gimli was, he has to be everybody's favorite. I mean, uh John Reese Davies, uh, for those of you who don't know who he is, he was, uh, Sulla in all the, um, Indiana Jones movies. Uh, if anybody has seen those, you know, he's this big bulking guy and he plays kind of like this short bulking dwarf in the movie and, and does a great job. I mean, he does a fantastic job. I mean, it's just hard to believe it's the, how they were able to make him up and make him look like a dwarf. I mean, it is absolutely fantastic when you watch this. Uh, and when you think about it, guys, I mean, this movie is made back in uh, oh, 2001. In 2001, I mean, this is this isn't a movie that was made just a couple of years ago. I mean, you watch this movie now, and uh, at the time it was made, again, you know, it was CGI. I mean, CGI has been around and everything like that, and special effects. But you know, this movie's 12 years old. It's it's been around for a while. You, know, you mentioned John Rhys Davies, and I think that's a good way to talk about the actors uh, and you've got a big cast here and I'll, I'll throw out a couple of the people that I really enjoyed and I'd be curious to get your your the people that jumped out at all of you you don't see him as an actor you only see him as the creature is Andy Circus who does Gollum yep 
he if there had been an academy award for an actor who is never seen except as a CGI creature Andy Serkis playing Gollum is is simply amazing he you have to have Gollum be believable and he is truly believable and later as the you don't see him much in fellowship you very you don't he I don't, even, I don't he has a few lines like when he whispers precious it's yeah it's until two towers and return of the king that he comes into his own and you see that that Gollum is a psychiatric he, he is a psychiatrist's dream of years of therapy <laughs> if he didn't eat you. Um, so Andy Serkis does a great job. Uh, another car- another actor who's a personal favorite of mine, I found him when he did the um, Sharp series, is Sean Bean as Bormir. I-, I like the way he portrayed this, this, this man of Gondor who has been defending the rest of Middle-earth from the threat of Mordor as a very conflicted soul. Uh-huh. And I, I, I like Sean Bean, so that's a personal thing with me, but I thought he did a magnificent job. And there's one other character. I thought Sean Astin did a great job as Samwise. He is the one character throughout this arc who really grows in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I thought Sean Astin was the, if, if you're going to say who would be the perfect Samwise Gamgee, I would have never picked Sam, uh, Sean Astin. He's John Astin's son from... Um, the Adams family. Uh, he did Rudy. Most people know him in Rudy. Yep. But I, I got to give him credit. He does such a magnificent job of being this this dedicated manservant, as it were, to Frodo. Right. Who, in the end, he has to be there for this movie to be success for the books to be successful. Right. Well, um, you you got to remember, Sean Astin was also in Goonies. My daughter was watching that before I came downstairs. There you go. One of her favorites. Yeah. Oh, good. But, well, I, a problem with reviewing this movie is we naturally, unfortunately for the listeners, it's one movie. These three movies are one movie. Good a point. thing that I loved about this, and I've commented to many people, is the way that you know you went to the movie and you saw The Fellowship of the Ring, and then you sat back and you waited, and then you went and sat down for The Two Towers, and it's just... Boom! It just picks up right where it left off. Right. It wasn't, you know, wasn't all dialogue, wasn't a lot of fancy schmancy, you know, backstory or anything. It's one movie, so we do tend to. I, we, I, I'll apologize for this because we are tending to drag in other parts. <laughs> but uh, in terms of characters, it does have such a great cast. I mean, I will. You know, we talk about Hugo Weaving. I thought he brought a very good set of skills to this movie. Uh, he plays Elrond. For the first half of the movie, the whole goal is to get to Elrond. And then the second half of the movie is doing what Elrond told you to do, basically. Uh, he's a very you know, very strong actor, and uh, you know, I think that he dominated, in a lot of ways, the scenes that he was in. Well, I mean, that was the thing. It's like Elrond was the... He kind of like took the, uh, the role of the wise elder that pretty much was counseling, uh, you know, the dwarves, the humans, and the other elves in terms of what needs to be done about the ring. And I thought he did a fine job. Um, it definitely was one of those when I first saw the movie, I was like, hey, wait a minute, that's Agent Smith. <laughs> I first saw yeah. So it's like it took me a little bit for me to reprogram myself because I've only seen the guy in two movies. And the first one was The Matrix. And I saw, I think I 
saw the two first or the first two Matrix movies before I saw this, so it was kind of like I had to I had to deprogram myself not to think that he was just gonna uh, you know like morph into something else and do something crazy. So, uh, but no, he no he did a fantastic job. I mean, he was great, but. Like I said, I think the the people that took this movie away, um, you know, I have to agree. Sean Astin, you know, for what he had done up to that point, uh, I mean, you thought veteran actor. I mean, the guy was was fantastic in it. Uh, definitely did a great job of playing. Uh, kind of a what's the word? I mean, he he was just kind of the uh, the dingbat uh, Batman, if you will, to uh, to Frodo, but. A competent one. I mean, he wasn't. Uh, I mean, he he was just kind of goofy, but he was a very competent type of uh, uh, sidekick. Like I said, Sean Bean, love everything this guy's in. I mean, you know, the, the guy's a great actor. I mean, he has incredible range, can pretty much play uh, anything you stick him in. So, I mean, whether it's a good guy or a bad guy, you know, Sean Bean's your your, your person. I'm getting the impression you guys don't have a strong opinion on Elijah Wood as Frodo. I'm just going to say I thought Elijah Wood did a fine job as Frodo. And a thing that I really appreciated is if you're paying attention, you know, he starts out as a energetic, sort of happy-go-lucky, happy with his life. And then as the movie goes on, he just gets more and more tired. And I think some people sort of dog him for that. They're like, oh, yeah, he's kind of weak. He's just sort of wimping around and all. But to me, it's a part of what Mark was saying. It's Everybody's got their role to play. He's a very small person, and he's carrying the weight of the world with him. Mm-hmm. And you see that toll being taken all through the movie. And he he goes about his work with you know dedication. He's going to see it through, even though he easily should not even be trying. That was a, a nice thing about this movie is the whole idea of the Fellowship of the Ring is what might be seen in other movies is you know, we've got this big, bad job to do. We've got to gather the strongest, the toughest, the best fighters. And then it turns out, well, they even the strongest, toughest, best fighters can't pull this off. And they have to leave it to some hobbits who are the least impressive people in Middle Earth. Yeah, it's almost very biblical. It's almost uh, Frodo is David yeah. and David yeah. and Goliath. Uh, and, and, you know, Tolkien was very – was faith-based in many ways. And, and there's a lot of, I think, the type of faith evident in this movie that you could read into it if you wanted to. And I think that's a great point, uh, Ken, about Elijah Wood. I think also, to Elijah Wood's credit, boy, does he have the most empathic eyes. Uh, oh, God, yeah. He's like wow. one of those paintings you used to see, the the girl with the big eyes back in the 70s. You know the ones yep. I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, he has soulful eyes. That's a great term. And again, all the hobbits, I mean, again, there's there's four hobbits in this. Elijah Wood as Frodo, Sean Astin as Samwise. You've also got uh, Billy Boyd as Pippin Took and Dominic Monaghan as Mary Brandebuck. They are definitely played as a mix of fish out of water, you know, a little bit of comic relief, and basically, I hate to say it, I mean, sort of idiotic blunderers. They're the ones that are always making the noise or lighting the fire or giving away the location. But given that, they 
jump in and do what they can to further the adventure. When the when the fighting gets tough, they weigh in. And again, they grow as the series goes on. They grow up, I guess, for lack of a better term. Well, a, a basic thing in the whole book is that the hobbits are, again, they're peaceful, pastoral people. But you can basically say they are sheltered children. They, you know, And there's a backstory of, for whatever reason, there are powerful forces that are at work protecting them, sheltering them, making sure they don't need to be bothered. And they, they stay in their little place of the world. They're not curious. They don't know what's going on around them. They don't care what's going on around them. And so get these guys all are forced out of the Shire, and then they got to get out in the big, bad world. And it is a big, bad world. Kind of like college yeah. students. Yeah. So aside from the binge drinking and all, which, again, they, they do some binge smoking and all. They, they, no, they, they, binge, they binge beer it up. At the, that's true. Yeah, they knock off a few. Yeah, at the Green Dragon, they binge beer it up. But yeah, you, you're right. That, that's a really good point about them. They they are they are innocents abroad at the beginning. They really are. And you know, I think it's great because you're right. It's not the we we have to we have to have the Expendables cast to get this this through. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you had to, yeah, that's exactly right. You would have to get the the baddest, toughest group, and that's what they were trying to do. That was a to me. I you know I'd read the book. I knew it was coming, but. If you hadn't seen the read the book and you were watching this set up, you might fall into the trap of thinking, well, they got, look at that, that band of tough dwarvish fighters. Certainly those guys will be a part of this and all those elvish archers and, you know, they, you know, that, that, those tough humans. And you'd be thinking, oh, they're going to put together, you know, an elite team of toughened fighters. And it's like, no, that's not what they did. They just, you know, they got a little bit from every race and a bunch of hobbits and off they went. And I thought that was a neat touch. I also like, since we're talking characters, I do want to throw out the, the two wizards. We need to, I mean, we touched on the fact, you know, Christopher Lee, certainly a man with great gravitas as Saruman. He betrays Gandalf. You he betrays realize. Gandalf. Again, you think at the very start he's a good guy. And then quickly, no, he's not. He's a bad guy. He totally reverse switches. But then Gandalf is, uh, Ian McKellen did an awesome job. As Gandalf, you know, this movie has brought so many characters, lines out into the pop culture, and Gandalf brings a bunch of them. You know, we talked about roles of actors in other movies, uh, roles that they were born for. I mean, we talked about George C. Scott with Patton. Uh, I mean, Ian McKellen. I mean, he was Gandalf. I, I can't imagine putting anybody else in there to play that role was Ian McKellen. I mean, he was absolutely uh, spot-on fantastic. And, uh, I mean, did he even, was he even nominated? Was I mean, I know this movie got nominated for awards, but I don't know if anybody got, uh, I don't know if it ever got anything as far as actor-wise. I mean, if, if there was one, I mean, it should have went to him. Of all people in this movie. Uh, uh, he was nominated, did not win. He was nominated. Right. Okay, so at least, at least they noticed him. And I, you know, that, okay, good enough. We've talked about it, uh, roles people are born for, and like I said, that was uh, definitely his, by all means. And I think it's a credit that, obviously, he came back and did The Hobbit. He's going to do the next three movies. Right. Uh, so he he must enjoy the role, and he must find it a value for his body of work, because he's sticking with Peter Jackson, as are all the actors. Mm -hmm. They're all coming back from this movie. You know, we've talked a lot about this movie. Uh, I do want to jump back to um, my favorite scene in the movie. Again, it's the Mines of Moria. 
I want to talk about that battle scene. I just thought the whole setup and everything, and actually the whole part from from the battle scene to the time they got out, I thought this is this is the best part of the movie. And what I liked about it is after Pippin dumps the body down the well and causes the you know the huge commotion, I love the whole way they set that up where it was just like it woke all the goblins up and all of a sudden you start hearing the war drums and, and all that and everybody's just like, oh shit. They're all basically running to barricade the doors and you know like you said or when Sean Bean runs over there and he looks up and he's like, they have a cave troll. You know, it was just that whole, is it going to get any better or not? And after they pretty much try to fortify the door as much as they can, it was just that scene that Peter Jackson shot of all everybody just standing there. And you can see they're, everybody's scared. None of these guys are just like, you know, bring it on, no. except for Gimli. is like, you know, you know, this is what dwarf you're not going to take out. You know, it's like, you know, but everybody else is like, we're all going to freaking die. <laughs> you know, I mean, the hobbits are shaking and everybody's just like, God bless it. And then when they started coming through, I just thought it was great just the way everybody, uh, you know, threw in there. And what I really liked, the, uh, like too, is they showed even the hobbits, even Sam, Pippin, uh, Mary, and Frodo. They just jumped in there, too. I mean, they pulled out their swords, and they got into the mix of it. I mean, everybody was fighting. It's not like they were, like, huddled back there, you know, huddling behind Gandalf, who, you know, he draws his sword. I like the fact that Gandalf has a sword. I think that's awesome. He doesn't use fireballs or, right. you know, yeah, no spells. No D&D magic. Magic no. in, in Middle-earth is much like magic in Robert E. Howard's world. Yeah. It, it's very controlled, and it's very time time and energy consuming right and also i love that fight it's the best use of an iron skillet <laughs> as a weapon <laughs> when sam is just waylaying goblins with the flat of an iron skillet because you know what an iron skillet's a good four or five pounds you hit somebody with that they're yeah. gonna oh, know yeah. it well i love it. he's got a sword in one hand iron skillet in the other and hey. he's, you hear this Swing, <laughs> and he's like, "I'm getting the hang of this." Yeah. Well, that's a you know the, the battle scenes all through this series were very well done. I mean, some people said they're overdone, but not, I don't. I never got that feeling. I never had that opinion because all through the books, violence and the threat of violence is constant. And I thought that Jackson does a very good job of setting it up. Most, I, I think it's fair to say that virtually no fight scene is just like, oh, it's another fight scene. Real quick, one fight scene, as it were, that I, I, I would like to touch on that I just think is awe-inspiring, because it it is everything that any World of Warcraft, D&D, Tolkien, any high fantasy geek goes, holy shit. And if you aren't even in that, when you see it happen, you go, holy shit, is the Balrog. Oh yeah. The showdown between Gandalf and the Balrog is jaw-dropping. Mm-hmm. Not only for the effects, but for you have this puny little wizard and this gigantic demon and that standoff on the bridge is just it is just so well played out how you are talking about two elemental forces here. I love the other actors that that play Aragorn and all the other members of the fellowship are like, "Oh shit, we're going to die." <laughs> you know, they all have that look like 
Oh, shit. <laughs> yep. Because that Balrog, that showdown is just so well done. That is a brilliant duel between mm-hmm. two equals. And I, I got to give Jackson credit. And I got to give McKellen credit because McKellen's, you know, he's, he's he's probably acting against some guy standing there going, okay, I'm a Balrog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Balrog. Scary sure man. you are. Scary man. Yeah, scary Balrog. Ah! Uh, and then to envision the Balrog, and again, we've said it, and I'll say it again. That's what the Balrog looked like in my mind's eye. For those of you that are younger, we read these books back when we were younger, and there was hobby paintings, artists that were envisioning Middle Earth. The Hildebrand brothers. Hildebrand brothers were doing a lot of just images that, you know, their vision of Lord of Middle Earth. And the movie, I think, I'm sure they dragged all those images out and tried to get that feel. Because the Balrog in the movie was very similar to the Balrog in the Hildebrand images. And if, if our listeners aren't familiar with the Brothers Hildebrandt, just Google Brothers Hildebrandt and look at their images. Because they put out a lot of calendars in the 80s of Lord of the Rings. And by and large, I would agree with you, Ken, that if you were going to say who are the concept artists for this, in many respects, you have to give homage to the Brothers Hildebrandt. Yes. I mean, I'll give Jackson all credit he's due, but I think that they use that as source material. Real quick, what did you guys think? I'll reserve my my opinion. I want to hear your opinions. What did you think of the ring wraiths and the horses? I thought those guys were cool. I thought I thought they really kind of hit that off. I liked it. I thought they were very yeah, very ominous, very spooky. If you did not know, read the book, you wouldn't know what the heck they were. Definitely scary. Well, yeah, I, I'm like uh, I, Steve. I, I agree with you. I, there's an element of menace about them. Yeah. I think they lose a little bit of that when we have this battle on Weathertop because their menace is just they're out there. You know, they're stalking them through the Shire. And then when we get to Bree and they attack their room, I think when they're a menace that's kind of around the edges, they're much more effective than when there's direct action involved between them. Because they don't go into the whys and wherefores and Return of the King and we're jumping forward two movies when the chief wraith, the king of the ring wraiths, is killed so easily. It makes sense in the book, right? but it's kind of anticlimactic in the, in the great showdown outside the gates of Gondor. You're like, that's it? I love that scene. Oh, I, don't get me wrong. I love it, but I know why it happens. But it's just like, well, she just... She just offs him by sticking a sword in his face, and he's supposed to be a ring wraith. Well, there's more to it than that. That's right. <laughs> and I think one of the things, there was, a, there was a scene where they show the ring wraith on his horse, and it almost looks like there's blood running down the hooves of yes. the horse. Yes, I, I know which one you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about? There's there's this other world. Again, we go back to this otherworldly, you really believe that the, this is this is tangible. This could have existed in a fantasy realm. I mean, it, and again, good science fiction and good fantasy. We touched on it with um, Blade Runner. It has to make you believe. You willingly suspend the reality you exist in and go, yeah, I, I can accept that this is this is doable for the three hours I'm sitting here. That is what I think. That's why I think we're all attracted. We're all, if people haven't figured out, we're geeks, we're nerds, whatever you want to call us. We love fantasy and science fiction. Um, and I think it, it is really a testament 
in this movie and the books that it you willingly you you can get sucked in. Mm-hmm. You can believe that Middle Earth may exist somewhere. I just haven't found it yet. Just much like Robert Howard's Hyperborea could exist. Right. All right, gentlemen. Uh, let's move on to uh, the one part of the show that uh, I know all of our fans look forward to, and that is, brother, what you drinking? Uh, I'll I'll jump in. I'm, I'm drinking a nice Michigan Riesling, a 2007 from the St. John's Winery. I originally had gotten it because two reasons. One, I had it in my fridge, and a neighbor came <laughs> by, and I popped it open to entertain her while she was venting. And then, well, if we were going to do the duelist, that's about the French army, and the French army, they march on what? Wine and brandy. So I was going to be drinking wine for that. I didn't know if anybody in Middle Earth drank wine. I mean, there's a lot of beer and ale being slogged back, especially by Gimli, but was there any wine being guzzled? I don't know. I have to assume it was. Is that a sweet Riesling, or is it uh, a little more crisp? It's crisp. It's crisp, and again, it's a very. I mean, I, I've always heard this winery is a good winery, and I actually visited it back in '09 with a friend of mine. She was touring, showing me around Michigan, and we've stopped by this winery and picked up a few bottles. This one's been in the cooler ever since, but it is just one of the crisp ones. I don't like the ones that are too sweet. Yeah, where what part of? Um, I'm just curious, what part of uh, Michigan is it? Upper is it northern Michigan or is it? Uh... Uh, lower, like north of South Bend. <laughs> okay. 50, 60 miles north of South Bend. Okay. Southern Michigan. There's evidently a pocket of, like, the, the lake creates a pocket of weather zone there that actually lets uh, people do a good job of growing grapes. St. John's Winery, you said? I believe it was St. John's. I'd have to double. It's St. Something's. I'd have to double check. I believe it was well, That St. narrows John's. it down. St. Somebody. St. Swithin's. St. <laughs> Swithin's. I am staying. I'll, I'll stay in the, in the realm of the great state of Michigan, Ken. But I'm going on the other side. I'm going with a nice ale from one of my favorite breweries, and I think it's safe to say one of one of Steve's and uh, Herr Muncie's breweries, Bell's. <laughs> Bell's Smitten Golden Rye Ale. Have you had this one, Steve? I have not heard of that one, but I will uh, endeavor to find it. It's. I think they brought it out last year. It is a. It's a very crisp, but not suck your cheeks in citrusy pale ale mm. it's it's a very crisp on the front end and smooth on the back end it's a nice you know the weather's getting better down here in kentucky i didn't really want to drink bourbon tonight even though the derby is tomorrow um <laughs> i don't know if they have bourbon in middle earth i've never heard them drinking about drinking bourbon so i went with a nice ale for middle earth with my pipe weed tonight in my one of my many pipes but uh, it's a it's a citrusy pale American pale ale, and it, it's a good crisp summer beer. I think you might want to try it. I'm I, and you know Steve, I'm not a huge fan of pale ales, mm-hmm. but I like this one for this time of year. It's a good summer beer. Cool. That's a try. Yeah, so it's called Smitten Golden Rye Ale. And folks, for those of you who uh, are new to the show, there's a few breweries out there that we uh, we will typically. Uh, rant about i shouldn't say rant we will rave about i think that is the proper terminology and bells is one of them uh b-e-l-l-s uh some of the best words and uh, or the best letters in uh, brewing it's it's hard for these guys to turn out a bad beer uh a little pricey but uh well worth the uh well worth the purchase uh, definitely uh one of the 
uh, the better craft brewers out there. Actually, probably one of the best craft brewers out there, I have to say. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, I mean, these guys don't put out the, the singles and stuff like that, like, uh, you know, my buds over at uh, Stone and stuff like that do, but their stuff is uh, top-notch. You, you will never be disappointed with it. Uh, well, I was uh, thinking we were going to do the Duelist tonight, so I didn't uh, buy anything else other than what I bought the other night uh, for it, so I'm going to have to go out and buy it again. Actually, I'm going to have to go out and buy something different. Uh, but like our good and dear friend, uh, Cam Precious Roney, I also had some wine because the French Army marched on wine. I have a, uh, a 2009 uh, Chateau Matelou Bordeaux. Is it a dry, oaky flavor? or it, is it it's, a- very, it's actually, uh, Bordeaux's are very earthy. Deb hates them. She's like, eh, it's, it tastes like I'm drinking dirt. I'm like, well, basically you are. Um, <laughs> That's it, like saying if I'm drinking scotch, I'm drink, I'm drinking peat that's been <laughs> set on fire. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And that's pretty much what Bordeaux's are. I love Bordeaux's. And uh, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, her brother, loves Bordeaux's. And so him and I actually will, uh, when he ever gets around to coming over, we'll uh, share a bottle of Bordeaux together. Bordeaux's, they are a red wine. And uh, this one is very, uh, very heavy on the uh, blackberries and uh, there's a slight hint of pepper in it. Really like it. Uh, it's, it's pretty mild, uh, but very earthy. And if you like earthy beers, it's dry. If you like, I mean, if you don't like dry wines, you're not going to like Bordeaux. So stay away from those. And uh, I actually have to say that I think this is the uh, first wine that I have showcased or on this. Is that, show. A, is that a French um, winery? Uh, absolutely. Anything from okay. the Bordeaux region? That's the Bordeaux part of France. It's it's from yeah. Is that, that Bordeaux, Bordeaux Booker? <laughs> <laughs> is that Bordeaux? Hey, podcast is over. I'm done. Get the ionosphere out of our podcast, Booker. It's a game on here. Bordeaux, he ain't even in this war. Yeah. All right. <laughs> wow. Very well done. All right. Uh, that is it with uh, Brother What You Drink. And so you know what we have been imbibing tonight. So we are going to move on to Clips, our favorite part of the show. Honestly, guys, I just pulled a bunch of random clips out of here, so uh, hopefully I will have done uh, great honor to the show. So uh, here's number one. All I did was give your uncle a little nudge out of the door. Whatever you did, you've been officially labeled a disturber of the peace. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? <laughs> Notice the music in the background, so happy and light and relaxed. Yeah, it is. It's like that whole, uh, you know, it, it's like every different little scene had its own music. So. And and that's another scene where he's puffing on a great church warden. Yeah. This movie has the best use of pipes. <laughs> Everybody's got a pipe in this movie, practically, except the elves. <laughs> I, as a pipe smoker, love this movie for that fact. Because he's like, oh, really? And he's got this long church warden he's puffing on while he's... He's looking at Legola, or, uh, um, uh, Frodo like, well, uh, I'm a disturber of the peace, I see. Hmm. Yes, indeed. Reminds me of a good and dear friend that we know from reenacting days, doesn't it, Steve? <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> All right, number two. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> what? And I just love when they just kind of pan out to the crack. Everybody just kind of looks at each other going, what? <laughs> and that is actually Ian Holm. 
and uh, we didn't even talk about him in the uh, show. But uh, for those of you who don't know who Ian Holm is, he played. Uh, oh shit! He played the android in Alien. Yes. Um, what the hell was his name? For the love of God, I almost said Bishop, but that's that's no, it. No, that's the other one. All right, moving on. Uh, let's see, number three. But we still have time. Time enough to counter Sauron if we act quickly. Time. What time do you think we have? Okay, I just want to say right off the bat, um, I like Christopher Lee, but um, that whole scene, I think uh, all you had to do was replace Martin Sheen in his role in uh, as General Lee and get. I start laughing hysterically because I immediately start thinking of Martin Sheen slamming <laughs> his fist on the table saying, there is no time. And I don't you know, know why the hell that comes to me, but it does. Sorry. Bravo. I never thought of that until you said it. <laughs> you know, the other thing I've got to say, one of my complaints, it's a, it's a very minor complaint, but every time I see Christopher Lee as Saruman, I go, that's Elvira's dad. <laughs> <laughs> that hairpiece, it's just, that's Elvira's dad. You know. Hey. Well, you know what? Hey, you know, the dude's old, dude. I know, but the hairpiece they put on him makes him look like Elvira's father. Okay, number four. And uh, this is for us, guys. What's that? This, my friend, is a pint. It comes in pints? Oh. I'm getting one. Mm. I love that. It comes in pints? Mmm. <laughs> He's kind of like ready to gobble it down. Oh, God, you see He's looking over the lip of it. That was more than a pint. That I think that was more like a quart. That <laughs> <laughs> thing looked like a that thing looked like a quart of milk when he brought it over. All right, number five. I think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. What about elevensies? Lunches, afternoon tea, dinner, supper. He knows about them, doesn't he? I wouldn't count on it. And the best part when the apple flies through the air and smacks Pippin right in the face. And, and again, it's what Ken mentioned. It's that type of humor. Yes. That's injected at the right point in the movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's perfect. All right. Uh, let's see. Number six. The ring cannot be destroyed, Gimli, son of Gloy, by any craft that we here possess. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. Again, listen to the menace and the ominous tones there. You, you know you're hearing a serious speech. And that is, that's what really kind of sets the whole thing up. When you finally realize, it's like, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. Somebody's got to take this ring back to Mordor. And that's where the whole thing sets up where Frodo's like, shut. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I love Hugo Weaving enunciates. I mean, he his presentation of the facts and as an attorney can you might you got to appreciate it he just lays the case out to the jury right there his presentation his diction i should say is just dead on perfect for how serious the situation is yes, but i will say that scene of the immediate aftermath of that clip where the Different races and different power players start feuding and fighting over who's going to do what and how's it going to be done. And then, boom, the hobbits step up to do it. You go weaving Zelrods and sort of go like, what, 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 huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's not what I had in mind. Yeah, exactly. No, that's a good point. 
this is number seven. And I threw this one in there because I'm sure anybody who's, uh, probably on Facebook or you've probably seen the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Photoshop thing floating around of, uh, Sean Bean playing Boromir doing, uh, one does not simply walk into Mordor or there's some variation of that, uh, saying that is said. And I just have to throw this one in there. One does not simply walk into Mordor. I, I just love that because that has become like this, uh, internet quote where they just say one does not simply walk into, and then there's some, something that they throw in there and it's always him with that look on his face when he's saying it and it's just classic so i had to throw that in there all right number eight this is uh actually this is when they walk into when they first get into moria this my friend is the home of my cousin's volleyball and they call it a mine a mine this is no mine it's a tomb now that was a good scene because again they're setting it all up that, you know, this is a thriving community, strong, vigorous, you know, and sort of a little thing of, a little subtext of, well, we, they're so, you know, these dwarves are so powerful, I think, uh, Gandalf's going like, we really don't want to go in there, because, I mean, they may interfere with our tasks, and then you get up to it, and, oh, no, they're not going to interfere at all. Something else might, but the dwarves aren't going to. You know, and the, and the other thing I want to jump in there on is the sound editing, is... When you heard that quote, the echo, you felt yes. like you were in a cavern. Yeah. Great sound editing again. Uh, let's see. This is number nine. This is after uh, Pippin uh, accidentally dumped the body down the well and made a whole bunch of noise. And this is Gandalf's um, response. Fool of a took. Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. Uh, number 10. Uh, Mark, this one's for you. They have a cave troll. <laughs> I love that line. Because <laughs> it's just so deadpan. He just looks at he looks at Aragorn like, shit, they got a cave troll. What else do they have? I mean, it's like, of course they do. Well, sure. <laughs> well, sure. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, number 11, probably the most politically incorrect uh, line of the movie. Nobody tosses a dwarf. To be corrected later in the series. Was it really? Yeah. Well, oh, oh, yeah, there's a whole scene. Oh, yep. yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're going to have yep. to toss me. <laughs> but don't tell the elf. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's humor because, I mean, if you – they don't do it anymore, but bars – some bars used to have dwarf tossing contests as a drinking game. I, I never was in on it, but – it was always controversial because is it really right to be tossing dwarves as entertainment? I I don't think so. I agree. It's not, but a dim chapter in bar entertainment history. <laughs> All right, uh, number twelve, and this is probably the classic Gandalf quote. You shall not pass. I mean, when he does that, it's just like wow. Yeah, that's that moment I think that the audience realizes this guy is more than what he appears to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you always kind of look at Gandalf as, you know, he's just kind of like this, you know, happy-go-lucky. Well, I wouldn't say happy-go-lucky, but he was this... Gentle- he's, he's a wise man you know, yeah. and a conjurer, and everybody that deferred to him because they knew he has skills, but he doesn't show them. But, you know, there's one time where you... St- 
start to see it's like Gandalf is a little bit more than what he seems. Oh yeah, is in the very beginning, and we didn't even really talk about it. But when you know when when he went back to the you know the the house where um, where um, I'm sorry where Bilbo was when Bilbo had the ring, and Bilbo is basically I mean he's you know he's all about the ring at this point. And when Bilbo kind of turns on Gandalf, it's like, you know, you want it for yourself. And all of a sudden, Gandalf is just, and I should have got that clip because he just turns into this menacing, I mean, the whole room gets dark. He just, his whole appearance changes. And well, that's the camera he, angles back to, like, make him look like he's growing. Yeah, and the whole thing you realize is, like, you know what, this this guy can just, ruin your whole day if you get on his wrong side. And you see, like, you know, Bilbo pretty much uh, performed all of his excremental bodily functions right there on the floor. And, you know, and then rugs up and hugs Gandalf, saying, I'm sorry, don't kill me. Yeah, he's not the simple hedge wizard everybody thinks he is. And that's just it. I mean, you start realizing he's a warrior wizard, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, he's not, you know, he's not one of those guys I'm, I'm going to, I mean, he does the stuff with the, the fireworks. He makes the kids happy. But you know what? This is a guy, if there's a, if there's a fight on, you want this dude on your side. So. And he's here for that reason. And, that, uh, and that's in the books, and that unveils itself in the movies. His whole purpose is the issue at hand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. As with Saruman, but to no avail. All right, folks, that is it with clips. We are moving on to the Man Cave Movie Review Checklist. Number one, did anyone jump out of a window? Well, there's no windows in this movie. I oh, always have to jump in. I don't I don't get considered jumping through a window, but Gandalf dragged Sam through a window. You know, I was going to say, well, well played, Ken. Um, Trimming the verge in the middle of the night, eh, Mr. Genji? <laughs> Don't turn this anything unnatural. <laughs> you know what? I I have to say I'm going to give that one. I'm going to give that one to Ken. That as soon as yep. I said it, I'm like, you know what? I forgot about the point when he got dragged through a window. So technically, he didn't jump through a window. He got dragged. No, but there was uh, there was a body going through a window. So you know what? It qualifies. Yeah, it qualifies. All right, hold on. Get my feet set on this one. Number two. Was there a relevant female role in the movie? All right, just fire away. Fire and hole. We've talked all about Liv Tyler as Arwen. We haven't talked about Kate Blanchett, who played Galadriel. I mean, Galadriel is supposed to be the queen of the elves, so they hire the woman that played the queen of the Britons. I thought she did a very fine job. <laughs> I got nothing. I'm out. I'm out on that one now. Ken wins the thread. But, no, we've discussed it. I don't think there's an irrelevant female role in here. As a matter of fact, they had to work to squeeze it down to just basically two roles and get, make them strong enough to carry the weight. You know, and, and, and I'll, I understand why Jackson elevated Arwen. She's not a player in the books. He did it because of the date factor. He had a couple strong female roles in the movie to help drive the box office. Do I think Arwen, do I think it's an irrelevant female lead? I think Liv Tyler, beyond her looks, is an irrelevant actress. I think there could have been other actresses, but I understand why he did it. Yeah. I do have to respect, you know, from my reading, my research I did, in the original version of the scripts, they were going to fall into the trap that I hate of turning Arwen into, you know, Xena Warrior Princess, 
and have her show up at Helm's Deep and Pelliner Fields and they were somebody not. like somebody. Oh yeah, Re- read a Wikipedia article on it. But somebody sort of slapped Jackson around a little bit and said, "No, no, 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 you, you can't do that." So, you know, she's she has that scene in the in this movie where I mean she's being she's carrying. Uh, Frodo back to uh, Rivendell, the safety, and being pursued by the riders. And, you know, what she shows is, I mean, she's obviously, she's an elf. She's been around for thousands of years. I mean, she's got all sorts of skills and talents. She's got basically some a little bit of magic or earth wizardry. I don't know what it would be. But they don't turn her into, again, Xena whipping out her sword and hacking and slashing with the best of them. And I, I like that because they easily, in today's Hollywood, they easily could have gone down that path. Good point, Ken. Like it. Uh, number three, could irrelevant female uh, role be better played by Tawny Katane? No. Uh, no, no. I'm sorry, Tawny. I love you, but nope. not, you're not. You don't fit in this movie. Uh, number four, what did I think of the irrelevant female? And since we pretty much discussed that being uh, Liv Tyler, again, guys, I I don't know. I mean, I, I thought she did fine. Uh, you know, for the role. I know, I know Mark's over there throwing up in the garbage can right no, now as I say this, I, but she was... I'm old, and I needed a pee break. <laughs> like I said, I don't dog on her for that. You know, was she the greatest actress in the world? God, no. But, you know, she fit the role. She looked the role. And I think for the amount of time that she was in there, she was fine. Could they have gotten somebody else? Sure. But she was good. Uh, let's see. Moving on to number five. Did this movie know what it wanted to do? By all means, start to finish, absolutely. No question. Yeah. And did it well. Yeah. I know the purists may disagree with me, but I have no argument with what Jackson accomplished, and I applaud him because he did what no one else was able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Number six, did George Lucas steal any part of this movie for Star Wars? Well, let's see. The uh, The Hobbits were, uh, well, he stole the Ewoks from the Hobbits. So. Well, um, oh, he stole the whole flipping movie. Uh, Obi Obi Wan was Gandalf. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, Frodo's Luke Skywalker. You know. Well, this goes back to what I was saying that the source, the lineal ancestor of most modern fantasy, is what Tolkien wrote. I'm pretty sure if you dig in, yeah, Gandalf, Obi Wan. I'm sure there was something there. Oh, there's got to be. Like I said, I mean, this movie spawned the whole, pretty much the entire fantasy realm. Basically, there's probably two guys that spawned the whole fantasy realm, uh, Tolkien and um, Howard. Well, and Edgar Rice Burroughs, for the sci-fi realm, with a little bit of fantasy, just because it kind of bled over between the two. Yeah, Burroughs, Howard, Lovecraft for horror fantasy, Mm -hmm. and Tolkien. Yeah, you could argue the Gormenghast trilogy if you've read it, but it's very obscure. <laughs> yeah, it's obscure. I've not even heard of that one. Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, last but not least, was there a Babylon Five reference? I have no flipping idea. I can't even begin. You know what? There's probably some dude that was probably an orc was running over in there. I couldn't find anything. Yeah, and I'm sure there was somebody in there, but. I'm sure have, Jeff will correct us next week. I have no idea. You know what, Jeff? You know, since you aren't here, that is your homework assignment. For the, uh, <laughs> for the, we want you to uh, go through your uh, database and find out, was there a B5 reference uh, in Lord of the Rings? 
And uh, you have to have the for us by Friday. Otherwise, uh, detention. Ooh, detention. Detention, absolutely. All right, uh, let's see. That is it for uh, the um, Man Cave Movie Review Checklist. So we're going to go on to the uh, the review of this movie. So I'm going to shoot this one over to uh, my good and dear friend, uh, Ken Precious Roney. What do you say, sir? Very simple. It's a 10. Don't need to go any further. I think, again, from everything we said, this is Peter Jackson took something that a lot of people said could not be done. And as much as you might be able to quibble on this or that point, this is a nine-hour going on ten-hour single story. Who else has done anything like this? And, it's again, it's a single story that fits on. I'll probably sit down and catch it. I mean, I caught it just last weekend. Caught the uh, Two Towers, at least, was on last weekend, and I caught it. So... You know, I'm I'm always afraid when they do the back-to-back version, I'm going to get sucked in you know, at noon or something and be sitting there watching it when midnight rolls around. <laughs> so, yeah, 10. I, I love this movie. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. We have uh, Mark. They have a cave troll. Slover, what do you say, sir? I fell in love with this fantasy. A uh, back, bit of backstory, and then I'll give you my review. I fell in love and became, to this day, I still love it. I read it. I devour it. Fantasy and science fiction based on four authors and, and four books. One was Frank Herbert's Dune, which I know we'll probably do the sci-fi miniseries Dune. Uh, Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers, Jerry Pornell, Larry Niven's Moton God's Eye, which are two classic sci-fi books, and J.R.R. Tolkien's um, Lord of the Rings. I think all of those are quintessential, if you will, literature in fantasy and science fiction and groundbreaking in many ways. And this movie lives up to the source material for Tolkien. I think Sci-Fi Channel does a magnificent job with Dune, and I hope we review it. I will not ever, I never have seen it, will never see it, watch that travesty called Starship Troopers by Paul Verhoeven. And someone has yet to do Mutt and God's Eye. Ken and I have talked about that at length, and that is one that should be done. This is a 10. Uh there are quibbles, just like Ken said. We're, we're picking nits at this point when we when we comment about little things. Um, it is a magnificent spectacle. It is truly what Hollywood used to produce. It is an epic, much like Ben-Hur, The Ten Commandments, and taken as a whole when we get to the other two movies and then stitch them all together. It is what Ken said. I will sit down. If it's on, bam, done. Sorry, three hours later, I'll surface um, I, I'm like you, Steve. I love popping it in every three or four months. I can sit and paint miniatures happily while I puff on pipe weed and enjoy a good ale and and watch this um, in my man cave. It, it, it is a it is it is a joy. I, I have to give Peter Jackson, his crew, and the actors a whole lot of credit for embracing this labor of love and giving us this gift because there's nothing else that it can be equated to as simply as a gift that if you watch it, you can watch it in many ways. You can just watch it cursory or you can really watch it and take away a lot of different elements and meanings and thoughts. And that, and that to me is what equates to an epic is you will always find something special that you didn't see the last time you watched this movie. So I agree with Ken. It's a 10 magnificent movie. Wow, I think we're probably bulling a turkey here, guys, because um, I'm going to give it a 10, too. This is, uh, you know, as fantasy movies go, I can't even really call it a fantasy movie. This is, you know, a classic, 
Well, no, it is. It's a classic fantasy movie. I got to give it a 10. Everything about it is exactly what I thought the book was in terms of just when you read a book, you, you, you have a vision of what you're, uh, you're reading. And everything about it that I read, it's like, yep, that's what it looked like. That's what Shire looked like when they went to the Mines of Moria. I'm like, holy crap. That's, you know, and when we talked about the Bell Rock, that's it. I mean, it's like they read our minds and put it on screen. You know, again, Peter Jackson, you know, as far as I'm concerned, what he did with this movie in terms of the directing and everything, you know, the guys really, uh, you know, went from obscurity, as far as I'm concerned, up to, you know, Ridley Scott stature in terms of what he does. I mean, this is a guy that basically could, as far as I'm concerned, write his ticket in terms of getting movies. And to be honest with you, what is he? I mean, he's done this and he's and he's doing the Hobbit, but it seems like he's just really kind of keeping a low profile. He did, he did King, King Kong. Kong. That's right, he did King Kong. I'm sorry, I, I forgot. And actually, you know what? To be honest with you, I watched that. I walked in there pretty skeptical about. It. I'm like, wow, that was actually pretty good. Uh, it was so, pretty good. It was. I and I and that's not the type of movie that I would normally go see, but I was I was pretty impressed with it. So there, I mean, you know, the the guy's got some talent. Uh, he actually knows how to not overdo the CGI special effects, and he does a very good job at it. So, again, I got to give this movie a ten. I have to uh, uh, agree with my um, uh, compatriots here. This is, I think, in terms of the series, and like Mark said, we'll talk about the rest of them. This is a ten. Um, I've got some, you know. Uh, comments about the other movies i'm not going to get into those till we do them but this is as far as i'm concerned the best of the series so there you go uh hey steve right. do we have any comments thoughts opinions from our listeners this week actually we is there a mailbag actually i have a I have a couple of comments i kind of got taken a task on the uh the last show we did uh, for those of you and you know what guys seriously for the listeners uh that are out there we're on uh uh, on Facebook, and that seems to be the place that people want to uh, uh, make comments to us. And, again, I don't care if they're good, bad, ugly, or in between. Uh, we want to hear them because that's the only way we improve the show. The first one is uh, I got a comment, I'm, and I was told not to give his name out, so I won't give his name out, but he said, uh, uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase, uh, quit whining about getting, uh, I'm sorry, quit whining about how it gets hard uh, getting into shape after 40. Wait until you're 60. Um, that was one of the things, uh, if you remember in the last show, Ken, we were talking about, you know, uh, you know, Tom Cruise, you know, he's, you know, he's 50 or so. And I kind of made the comments like, you know, I'm 45. And I'm like, you know, I, after 40, you start feeling the, you know, the workouts and stuff. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, is that, yeah, okay, I'm 45. I mean, yeah, compared to probably you, if, you know, our, our dear listener, if you're 60 or over. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a youngster, but you know what? I don't feel like I'm 45. I still kind of have the mentality and the spirit and the drive and everything that I did when I was 20. But, you know, the body's not 20 anymore. And even when you're 45, I, I don't recover as quick as I did when I was 20, or shit, and even when I was 30. I still remember when I was 30. It's like you could recover a lot quicker. 
And um, and I'm not whining. I'm just saying it's it, it, it is different. And uh, to be honest with you, God, I still hope I can go to the bathroom by myself when I'm 60. So uh, there you go. Uh, as, I as I said to my wife when she met all of us, all of you and decided she was going to spend the rest of her life today with me is I'm a 12 year old. <laughs> my friends are all 12 year olds. Hey, I, I'm 13. Yeah, well, all right, you're 13. We're responsible 12-year-olds. But you know what? Nonetheless, we're 12-year-olds. Yep. So you, we may be 45, 50, 55-year-old, 12-year-olds, but at heart, we're still 12-year-olds, Steve. We are. And that, and, and that's kind of what I'm getting at is that I still, I still think I can do the stuff that I did when I was in my 20s or even early 30s. And I can. Uh, I pay for it, usually over – several days and and it is i mean like i said i mean i i have no illusions when i hit 60 or and thereabouts that i'm even going to be doing what i'm doing now at 45 so and again it wasn't meant to be like oh i'm 45 i'm in my it wasn't meant to be that way it it just is it's a sign that we're you know that we're aging we just you know we we've got this feeling that we still want to do the stuff that we did when we were you know youngsters and you know, we kind of can, but it it has its toll on us. So that's yes, the whole But, but just remember what a wise man named Warren Zevon once said, I'll sleep when I'm dead. There's that. There's if, that. I, if I could throw out, I like you. I mean, I'm older than both of you. And I used to think, well, as long as I keep fighting the battle, trying to stay in shape, giving it everything I got, you know, I can, I can win. I can come out ahead. And I realize now that my, my body is – to use a historic analogy, it's the Wehrmacht in July of 1944. <laughs> I can keep fighting the battles. Steiner! Not even Steiner can pull me out. I'm going downhill. That's all there is to it. Again, I might get a good lick in here and there, but... No. So are you telling me you're Volkssturm? You're quickly becoming Volkssturm? The, the muscles that used to be, you know... Uh, no, no, no. I consider you Vokes Grenadier. You have not okay. transitioned to Vokes. The pans are lair. How's that? I mean, I'm not going <laughs> down so fast. And there comes a point in any battle where you realize in Lord of the Rings, when the or the when the orcs see the riders of Rohan coming down the hill, Morale they know well, they, they, they can keep fighting. They might get a lick in, but they're not going to win. Well, it's the old saying, age and treachery beats youth and energy any day. That's exactly <laughs> it. All right, so that is it for Man Cave Movie Review, Episode 60. Uh, stay tuned for us next week. We're going to be talking about, hell, you know what? We're not going to talk about anything. I'm going to surprise you. You know why? Because we've been surprising ourselves for the last two weeks. So we're just going to let it open up. We're just going to let it. Um, Please, God, let it be the duelists. <laughs> We're going to try. We're going to try to do that. But you know what, folks? No promises. I made a promise last time, and I broke it. That's why we're doing Lord of the Rings. But you know what? It was a great show. Hey, Steve, how many Hail Marys is that? Um, is that five Hail Marys and two Our Fathers? At least. <laughs> I'm probably going to have to go to confession this weekend. because yeah, You probably are. All right. Well, that's I mean, like I said, folks, we're I'm not making any promises for next week. There will be a show next week. If I have to talk to myself, there will be a show next week. And if Muncie's not here, you know what? We're going to do the two towers, and I'm really going to dog on him on that. You know what? If he's not here, we're getting a sock puppet. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. We will. We will do that. 
All right, so folks, hope you like this show and check us out at our website at mancavemoviereview.com and look for us on iTunes at Man Cave Movie Review. Uh, leave us a comment there and uh, actually leave us a review there because we like reviews on iTunes. Uh, and we are also on Facebook at Man Cave Movie Review. And that's the best place to uh, uh, get a hold of us. Either leave a comment on the page or feel free, honestly, to send us some messages and let us know how much you uh, can't stand this uh, podcast or love this podcast. And we're also on Twitter at Man Cave Movie. So until then, this is your host, Steve Michaels, signing off with my good and dear friend, uh, Mark. They have a cave troll, Slover. In the land of movie reviews, in the fires of Man Cave, the Dark Lord Steve Michaels forged in secret a master podcast to control all other movie reviews. And into this podcast, he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all movie reviews. One podcast to rule them all. Wow, that's uh, I'm gonna have to make you my right hand man. <laughs> yes, master. That's that. That's awesome. You can you just, just call, call me your Grima Worm Tongue. And also saying farewell, adieu, and Avida Zane is our other good and dear friend, Ken Precious Roni. I, I think based on that. I, we carry that analogy. Just call me Ken Ringwraith Roni. <laughs> I've been corrupted, turned, faded. I used to be out walking the world like a mortal man on a Friday night, interacting with my fellows, but I've been sucked into this empty video unreality. I've become less and less as the days have gone on. You're looking a little pale, Ken. I was going to say. I'm looking pale. I'm just hoping some, you know, blonde chick doesn't stick a sword in my face. <laughs> <laughs> that would That'll suck. Leave a mark. Yeah, that would leave a mark. All right, folks. Hope you liked this show. We did, and uh, stay tuned for us next week. And we will be back then. Until then, ciao. Just so you know. Oh, okay. Out as what? A drunkard? <laughs> I think I came out of that closet a long time ago. <laughs> that, that, yeah. Should say closet or liquor cabinet, which one? <laughs> mm, liquor cabinet. Yeah. Or beer barrel. Yeah. Yeah.